Okay, yeah. Well, I, I was asked to say a little bit about, you know, sort of suffering. Uh, you know, if we live in a creation that's been created by a loving God, why would there be suffering? And <clears throat> obviously, it's a multifaceted subject. So I, I can only really deal with um, the aspect that seems to me to be the best one to deal with today. Um, you know, obviously, when it comes to suffering, you know, immediately, uh, you know, I heard Belinda talking about, you know, some of our encounters with tornadoes and hurricanes and stuff like that as we travel around. And, you know, obviously in a fallen world, you know, I mean, sin, sin didn't just affect human beings morally. It actually affected um, the whole of the universe at a subatomic level. Changes literally happened in the universe so that the universe itself became a very, very different place. And so therefore, you know, immediately you had the introduction of, uh, you know, kind of things went wrong genetically, little bugs emerged and they can give illness and everything like that. You know, the world became unstable. And so you get weather and you get dangerous weather and disease. And there are all kinds of things where you get suffering, not because God has directly inflicted it, but because God did give Adam and Eve pretty good warning. Um, you know, and it's not just the actual verses we got in Genesis. I mean, <clears throat> God walked, the Lord God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve every day. We don't know how long that went on for before they fell into sin. But what we can know is that Adam and Eve would have, you know, been briefed, you know, sort of like, you know, God said to Adam very, very clearly in regards to this fruit. Kind of, here's a line. Don't cross it. It's a fruit. Don't eat it. Eat anything else. Don't eat this. Um, you know, it was it was probably, um, you know, one of your honey buns or a Twinkie or something like that, because, you know, God didn't want to impose anything like that on Adam. But, you know, God said, look, here's a fruit. Don't eat it. And in our English translations, it says in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Whereas in the Hebrew, it says in the day you'll eat of it, dying, you shall surely die. So the end result is going to be kind of physical death. But the immediate result is that you know, spiritual death. Immediately he's cut off from God. And then bit by bit, all this stuff starts to happen biologically, physically. As I say, at the subatomic level in the universe, you know, immediately there was a lifespan. There was bad weather. There were animals now that wanted to kill you, to eat you. Whereas up till then, everything just ate vegetables and and plants. And, and so there's much suffering throughout human history that is that result. You know, Adam and Eve, they cross the line. The result of sin is many, many things. And one of them is that, yes, tornadoes kill people. Disease kills people. And when people say, well, look, you know, OK, square that with a loving God. OK, it's not a question of squaring that with a loving God. You've got to square with, with a loving God the idea that he would create human beings in his own image and then not give them free will. To make someone love you really is not a very satisfactory <laughs> thing to do at all. I mean, we don't actually have the power to make someone love us. Right? It's a power that God has. But say you had that power. I mean, sort of say, you know, sort of like, you know, what one day, you know, there, there you are, a, a, you know, a single man and, and you see this creature of your ultimate dreams across the way, this beautiful dress. And you think, all I want is to marry her. All right. And so faint heart, never one fair lady. And off you go, only to discover that, in fact, 
you were the very last person on the face of the earth that, as it happens, she wants to marry. Now, if you could then slip something into her drink, all right? You know, if you had a potion and you slip it into her drink, and the effect of this potion is it makes her fall in love with you, how satisfying could such a marriage be when you know that actually she's not in love with you at all? It's the biological effect of, of a Mickey that you slipped her in her drink. Can you see? You have made her love you. Right? She doesn't love you because that love has come from her. She loves you because you've made that happen. Now, obviously, God could have created men and women with this kind of mockery of free will. And free will, you know, sort of we are created in the image of God. Which means there are many, every characteristic of, of, you know, of God is reflected in us. It's fallen. It's finite. But ultimately, everything that is true of God is actually true of every man, woman and child. But on a micro scale, because we are created in his image. Now, if there's one thing God has, it's free will. He can do what he likes, when he likes, how he likes. That is one of the perks, I take it, of being the Lord God, all right? <laughs> um, now, to a very limited extent, because we don't have free will anything like to the extent we think we have. You know, I mean, you can have your car parked outside, and you can say, that is my car, and, you know, by all rights, you know, I paid for it, I own it, I can get in that car and go anywhere I like at any time. Yeah, and, and that is absolutely right and proper. Now, let's say that you go out to your car because you've got to go somewhere. And there's this, this, this gang of hoodies with knives and guns, you know, and they're all seven and a half foot tall. And they've all been working out at the gym. And they kind of look at you and they say, we're taking your car. Well, what becomes of your free will? In theory, it's your car. You can do what you like. But the trouble is your free will is now overridden by their free will. Now, obviously, you can have a contest. You can put this to the test. Whose free will is going to prevail here? But in such a circumstance, I suggest you just give them the keys and, and let them get on with it, you see. So to, to a certain extent, although it's limited, we have free will. And you couldn't say that we're created in the image of God if we didn't have free will. It would be a mockery. So the only flip side of it would be, well, okay, so God hasn't got free will then. Because if God creates, God creates that which reflects him as the creator. Of course he does. So therefore, if you're going to say there's free will, then it's got to be that people can, to whatever extent, say, actually, God, I don't want to love you. Not interested. And I know you say this, that, and the other. You know, if we if we do our own thing, it's going to be bad for us. Don't believe you. And then humanity suffers those consequences. I mean, just think on this level. And, you know, then I'm going to move on, but I'm just dealing very, very quickly with the whole point for you to realise that there is much suffering that, that stems from human sin. Yeah. I mean, you know, just someone gets angry. They get angry, you know, and they go and beat you up. You have suffered because of sin, you see. I mean, it works like that. But, you know, sort of say, oh, no, I can't remember. Well, I, was, I had an example there, and I can't think what it was. Okay, scrub that, scrub that. And um, 
but let's you know let's move on to you know to the main thing that oh yeah no i remember what it was yeah god says this is how things work if you obey me it's for your best if you don't it's going to be very bad for you now the lord has created men and women to have a sexual relationship within the context of marriage so god's design is that no one should be having a sexual relationship with very many people at all. Now, you might be someone who's outlived six wives, okay? But the point is, it's still within the context of marriage. And we say, oh, no, I don't like that. That is very restrictive, you know. And, and you know, can you imagine if God got taken to the United Nations? I mean, they'd say he's taking away everyone's human rights to be immoral. Okay, well, say it's your human right to be immoral. Do you realise that there would be virtually no sexually transmitted diseases in the world today if human beings went by God's rules for sexuality? How many millions of people have died and suffered, died horribly, <coughs> especially in the third world where there's no medication to help them, purely through sexually transmitted diseases? And these sexually transmitted diseases come ultimately through immorality. Mm. And that is simply a biological fact. It's one of those biological facts that even scientists don't particularly want to have to acknowledge is the case. But it is the case. And even worse, a man is immoral. He picks up, you know, a disease and then he passes that on to his perfectly innocent wife. And then she has children and these children are medically defective in all kinds of ways. Again, it's just another example. It's not simple enough. Uh, sorry, it, it, it's just not good enough. If anyone wants to claim to be thinking in any way fairly to say that a God of love, how can you square a God of love with suffering in the world as we know it? My answer is you're looking at the wrong person. You're looking at the God of love. The problem is us sinners. That's where most of it comes from. Okay. But now to, to move on to the main thing that, you know, was on, on my heart to deal with, you know, when uh, you know, I was asked about this. And, and, and if you go to, to, to the book of Job, and we're actually going to have a look um, at suffering that one individual went through. <clears throat> and what we're going to see, that this actually is an example of someone who suffers but not as a result of their own sin in any way. Let's, let's just go to chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 1 to 12. So we just get the, get the picture here. In the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job, which is also my name. So there's, you know, I kind of feel for this guy. Um, I mean, for me, it's my last name, okay. Uh, it, it, Job means hated and persecuted. So I feel a connection there sometimes as well. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering 
for each of them thinking perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So we, we can certainly see here is a godly man. You know, this guy, he follows the Lord. He's a mature believer. You know, he, he loves the Lord and, and he's seeking, you know, to be living a life of godliness. So, you know, we got to look at when we understand what happens to Job, we're looking here at a mature believer. All right. Then verse six. One day, the sons of God and that phrase, whenever used in the scripture, in this sense, refers to um, angels, okay. Um, one day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, remember, Satan is, is an angel. Perhaps not in the sense we say, oh, isn't, isn't my little boy a little angel? But nevertheless, Satan is an angel. So, um, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. Why? Well, Satan's the God of the world, isn't he? He's the God of this planet. And interestingly enough, even after Jesus' death, Paul refers to Satan as the God of this world. That hasn't changed yet. So, you know, here is the God of this world presenting himself in heaven before the one true God, Okay. And the one true God says, well, where, you know, where have you been? Satan said, well, where else would I be? I've been on earth. I'm, I'm the God there, you know. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, just get this, because, you know, little insight here that goes against one of the perceptions that many people have, right? And sort of, you know, sort of the idea that Satan has access to heaven. And there's nothing, there's nothing in scripture to suggest that this has yet changed. I put it to you at a future time in the last days, Satan will be thrown down from heaven and never allowed to go back. But certainly at the time of Job, Satan and demons have access to God in heaven. It's not that God has absolutely nothing to do with them. And remember, um, in one of the other books in the Old Testament, you get this picture that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Well, where does Satan accuse the brethren? In heaven. And then, you know, when he gets thrown out of court, which he does every time he does it, because the judge is also the one who's justified us, okay? Um, so every time he gets thrown out, this court is in heaven. So don't don't get this idea that heaven is somewhere where Satan or demons never have been or can't go. Um, there'll come a time when they're thrown out for the last time out of heaven, but certainly at the time of Job, and it seems to me to this day, certainly Satan and demons have access directly to the Lord um, in heaven. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands. 
but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, what we are seeing here is we are having what I call one of the very, very few glimpses in the Bible behind the cosmic curtain. Hmm. There's a cosmic curtain that we cannot in this life go beyond. There is but one universe, but there are two aspects of creation. There's the material aspect of creation, but there is also a spiritual aspect. And there, there's a, a, a realm, there's a, a way in which spirit beings, the angels, the goodies and the baddies, all right, there's, they get up to stuff in this universe. Sometimes they get up to stuff outside of the universe. Heaven is outside of the universe. Because remember, God created the universe. So therefore, God was there before the universe. So heaven was there. Heaven is outside of the universe. Okay? So this kind of cosmic curtain, there's a veil, there's masses of stuff going on, both in heaven and in this universe, but which we are not able to see with any clarity at all. Doesn't mean it's not real, it's very, very real. But occasionally, we get a little glimpse behind it. Now, do you remember there was an occasion when Daniel, he was praying, he, got, he asked the Lord for something. Bit of information he needed, right? He prayed about it. And he fasted and, and he was praying and it went on and on and on and on and kept praying and no answer and kept praying and no answer and kept praying and no answer. I think we all know what that feels <laughs> like. Okay. But what he didn't know until the answer came was that the answer appeared in the form of an angel. And this angel said, look, he said, I, I set out. God sent me to you with the answer the day you prayed. But he said, the prince of Persia, referring to a demonic presence in that geographical location, he said, try to stop me. And throughout this period of time on earth that Daniel was waiting for the answer, there was literally a wrestling match between these two angels, a godly angel, a demonic angel. And literally, the demonic angel was trying to stop the godly angel from getting the answer to Daniel. Literally, by just wrestling with him. Okay, whatever that means when we're talking about angels. But can you see the point? There's all this stuff going on behind the cosmic curtain that we have really no knowledge of whatsoever. We can't see it, but what we can know from Scripture is that all the time behind this cosmic curtain, there's a battle that is constantly going on between the angels who are working under the authority of the Lord God and the demons who are working under the authority of Satan. And this battle, which is virtually completely invisible to our eyes, say every now and then you may get a glimpse, have to cast a demon out of someone and it's physical manifestations or whatever. But by and large, it's completely invisible to us. And this battle going on between the angels and demons impacts human experience daily, both corporately and individually. 
But the point is, we are not subjectively aware of what is going on behind the cosmic curtain. Now, let's come back to Job. Just getting on with his daily life, following the Lord, running his business. And he was a very, very rich man. He'd certainly been blessed in all kinds of ways. And completely unbeknownst to him. In fact, when, even when you get to the end of the book of Job, he didn't have a clue what was going on. <laughs> he didn't have a clue. So we, we certainly have the advantage over Job. Everything he went through, he didn't even know what was happening in heaven. But when we read the book, we know exactly what was happening and why he went through what he went through. And it was simply this. The Lord wanted to set up a challenge with Satan. Mm -hmm. And that challenge was actually to do with the very thing I said at the beginning about this notion of free will and loving someone because you love them and not because they've made you do it. Okay. And fundamentally what we've got here, and remember, it's the Lord who initiated this. Here's Satan hanging out with the Lord in heaven. Now, if that's a difficult concept for us, well, it's biblical. And, you know, where the Bible has even difficult things, it's for us just to accept it. Here is Satan with the Lord in heaven. Okay. And God said, got old Job down there. And, and I'll tell you, he's bragging on him. I mean, you know, we've, we, you know, we all brag on our children, don't we? I mean, you know, you know if, if, I mean, there are some, some parents who think everything their children do is wonderful. Ah, <laughs> oh, they're the parents who are breeding the little monsters. <laughs> but the point is, when our children truly are wonderful, I mean, we're, we're just proud of them, aren't we? And it's not, you know, we're not bragging on them in the sense, we're not trying to put anyone else's children down. We're not doing it competitively. But that pride in, in someone you love is part of loving them when they've genuinely done well. And, you know, the Lord is proud of Job. I mean, what a wonderful thought. Here's Job, sinner saved by grace, just like us. And the Lord is proud of him. Well, why? Well, because Job is so faithful. He's a godly man, and the Lord loves that. He absolutely loves it. So what, what, what God does is he, he, he brags, you know, to, to, you know, about Job to Satan. And Satan's response is, nah, he don't love you, really. Hey, look, you know, you're giving him, you know, he's the richest man in the world, probably. He's got everything. He's got a lovely family. He's got tons of money. And, well, we're going we're gonna to see if he had a great wife in a few minutes. But he certainly had children. And, you know, he, he had loads. I mean, he was in an ideal human situation. And so Satan said, no, no, no. He, 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 he's, he don't really love you. It's just selfish. You know, he'll keep loving you if you keep the goodies going. Now, that is the issue here. And it wasn't that, you know, God said, oh, look at Job and was then taken by surprise at what Satan said. Hmm. This was God deliberately. He wanted to demonstrate something to Satan. And what God was demonstrating or going to demonstrate to Satan through what Job went through from this point onwards was that through God's grace, a sinful man can indeed 
come to love God for himself alone mm. and not merely for his blessings. But here's the point. Because Satan, unlike Job, is unrepentant and therefore, unlike Job, completely ungodly, this is the one thing that Satan is completely unable to conceive mm. about God's plan. And there are aspects of God's plan that even the goody angels, they, what's going on here? You know, they try to look into God's plan of salvation, but even the goody angels don't understand it. But of course they don't. They've never fallen, and they never will. But of course the demon angels will never understand it because they have fallen and they will never repent. Mm. So the one thing Satan cannot conceive of literally selfless love, which is what the whole issue was between Adam and Eve anyway. Mm. Are you going to love me because you love me, or is it only going to be because you get what I, you know, and Adam and Eve, what did they choose? They chose themselves over God. And the Lord let them do that. He could have stopped them. Well, he didn't have to create them in the first place. But he let them do that because if a God of love creates in his own image, he's got to create beings of love. But they've got to be beings of love that is existing God. And therefore, to make someone love you is not genuine love, mm. you see. So this is the dilemma. But here, what God is saying, okay, he says, look, here's, here, here's the deal. Job loves me just because he loves me. The saint says, no, he doesn't. He loves you because of all the blessings that you've given him. And so there, let's read from verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? You've put the hedge around him. and But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said, very well. Everything he has is in your hands. And so the point is that what we've got is God says to Satan, okay, and interesting, Satan said to God, stretch out your hand, strike him. And God said, okay, off you go. Now, you know, sort of there are times when God strikes, he does it through Satan. And that tells us something else as well. Satan cannot do anything yeah, against a right. believer unless he gets God's permission first. Mm. And at this point, God's just given him permission to strike everything Job has. As it unfolds more, eventually, Job, as Satan says, I want to actually inflict Job. And God said, okay, but you can't kill him. Satan can't do anything against us without getting God's permission first. And so then if we read verse 20 to 22... And basically what happens is Job hears all his children have been killed. And then he hears that all his riches have been consumed, you know, animals eaten. And he, within a few days, I take it, he has lost absolutely everything. His children are dead and his economic security has been taken. Now look at this, verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe, and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord 
be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, again, what was the point of this? The Lord wanted Satan to have an actual demonstration that a, 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 a redeemed <laughs> sinner could love God for himself alone. And when Satan said, no, he only loves you because of the blessings you've given him. What is now the only way to demonstrate what God wanted to demonstrate? That everything Job had to be taken away. Hmm. And when it is taken away, what happens? Well, exactly what the Lord knew was going to happen. Job said, I don't love you because of all the blessings you've given me, Lord. I love you because you're you. And... Obviously, he is beside himself with grief and everything, but nevertheless, he worships the Lord. And he did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Hmm. Now, look, this, this is what true trust in the Lord is. This is also what true rebellion against God is as well. When Christian was doing his talk early, you know, and sort of dealing with these, you know, people, oh, well, how can a, you know, how, how can a God of love judge people and stuff like that? And, you know, so he, he, he <laughs> were mere men saying, well, I, what, what a God of love, he judges people. And as, as they spit those words out, mocking an idea of such a God who could be so low as to judge people. At the same time, they're making a moral judgment on God. Hmm. So here are sinful men and women condemning the righteous God for doing what they are now doing to him. They're telling him they're wrong. He's wrong. Hmm. The essence of sin is the belief that I am right and God is wrong. Yeah. That is the essence of sin. Hmm. So back to Adam and Eve in the garden. What was the real problem? Eve thought that Satan, Satan persuaded her of something. It was something God had told her the exact opposite. Eve concluded that she was right and God was wrong. Adam comes along, as it were, listens to his wife's arguments and concludes, yes, she's right. I agree with her. I am right and God is wrong. That is the essence of all sin. And what we see here in Job is a foundational knowledge that was more fundamental than anything else in his life. And it was knowing that he loved the Lord God, who by definition is good mm. and holy and kind. So therefore, remember, Job didn't have a clue what was going on. You know, now often we, and this is something that, you know, I mean, you know, the Lord has often had to, you know, work in me on this. I always feel happier if I understand things. <laughs> and okay, I mean, you know, there's nothing particularly wrong with that, you know, in that sense. But the point is that trust only reveals itself ultimately when you don't understand. My big example of this is that um, I don't have to trust my wife. I don't have to trust Belinda when I can see what she's up to. <laughs> but when she's off somewhere and I haven't got a clue what she's up to, 
That's when I discover if I can trust her or not. And I do trust her. But why? Because of my experience of her character. Now, obviously, when we're talking about the Lord God, we don't even need experience of his character. It's obvious. He's the Lord God. He's perfect in righteousness and goodness and in holiness. And so the point is, of all the things that Job might have concluded as possible explanations for why all this was happening to him, there was one that wasn't, wouldn't have even come into his mind. And it was that somehow God's doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Whatever's happening here, it cannot possibly be God's fault. It could be my fault. It could be someone else's fault. It could be for a reason that I will never know until I get to be with the Lord. But it cannot possibly be God's fault. Okay. And then it moves on. <coughs> Let's read uh, uh, chapter 2 and verse 7 to 10. Um, let's see. Um, nope, start from, yeah, sorry. Verse, verse 1. On another day, the angels, the sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. See, Satan is going, yeah, is going to see the Lord again. Oh, it's weird, but that's what the Bible says. That's what he's doing. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan said, from roaming through the earth and going to and from it. I, well, where do you think I'd be? I'm the God of this world. Been down mm. there where I'm God. Then the Lord God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Job. Um, there is no one on earth like him. And the Lord's bragging. And now he's got, you know, he says, look, Job, he's, I've taken away everything. Well, you've taken away everything he had. He's still worshipping me, all right? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. You see, Satan is the professional cynic, you see. Yeah. Um, a man will give all he has for his own life. Satan cannot um, conceive of a good motive. Yeah. So, um, remember, he thought he'd be a better God than God was. That's right. You see, that's how he got into this position in the first place. So that's the thing. E evil people can't conceive of non-evil. They just assume everyone's like them. You see. Yes, right. That's that. You know, that's what yeah. Satan's you know about here. But he says, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. See, he said, like, okay, you can go this far, Satan, but no further. And Satan's powerless. You know, one of the biggest mistakes that believers make about Satan is they think he's powerful. Now, relative to unbelievers, he is relative to you and me, well, actually, he doesn't have any power whatsoever over us. The only power Satan can have over the believer is to persuade them and deceive them into thinking he's got power. <laughs> it's the only power. Excellent. It's the manipulation Excellent. of the con man. That's, that, that's all he can do. And it goes on, uh, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> Just have a scratch here. Um, now, 
get this, I said he had everything, all right? I'm not sure he did. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Wives, if you ever want to know how to be a better wife, read this verse every morning for six weeks and be the absolute opposite of Job's wife. Okay, boom, boom, it's easy, isn't it? I have to say that with my parents, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of like if you if you haven't had the upbringing that the Bible says you should have, that is the best possible preparation for being a godly parent, and it works like this. I just do the opposite of what my parents did. It's easy, isn't it? Everything, you know, with a bit of godly, you know, sort of knowledge from from scripture. But his wife said, "So now." I mean, can you imagine how awful that would have been for him? His wife is folding. <laughs> you know, don't don't hang on to your integrity. Don't worry about holiness. Just curse God and die and get it over and done with. Well, I mean, that must have broken his heart as much as when his children died, mustn't it? And he replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. So at least he had a bit of wisdom to give a what for there. And he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Or actually in the Hebrew, shall we not receive good from the Lord and evil? Mm. You can debate all you like. Does God inflict evil on people? It's just one of those debates. It's not a relevant debate. Because once you understand the you know, the mechanics, God will not impose evil on someone. But the point is an evil universe. He will employ everything, evil included, to have his way. So it's a bit of a, you know, you know, a, a non-question. But look. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And a few chapters later, because then it got even worse, his Christian friends turned up. And if you read all the things that his friends were saying to him, who were clearly believers as well, they were men of faith like Job. But if you read, they came at it from a dozen different angles but what everything they said boiled down to is it's because there's something in your life that isn't right. Put that right with God and all this will go away. Now, the absolute irony is that all this was happening to Job, not because he wasn't right in his relationship with God, but precisely because he was. Yeah. That's the point. And there are evils that, that people can go through not of their own doing, although we experience that as well. We can suffer as a result of our own, uh, you know, sin that we haven't dealt with. But there's suffering that we go through precisely because we are right with God. And in chapter 13, Job says what for me is one of the, you know, the, the, the most astounding statements of mature discipleship, I think, anywhere in the Bible. And he says this. He says of the Lord, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And that has been one of the foundational verses of my whole walk with the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And of course, it's another way of saying, I have no explanation for this. I have a clue what to do. I can't understand any of this. This is the opposite of what I thought the Christian blessed life might be. But. I have no explanation whatsoever, except I know it's not God's fault. And even though it looks like he's slain me, even if it looks like the only possible explanation 
is that God doesn't love me anymore. I know that's nonsense. And so though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And so can you see that what you've got here is you have a believer going through terrible suffering, not because there's something wrong with his discipleship, but precisely because he is a man who is faithful to the Lord. And yet, even having said that, if you go now to chapter 42, and let's see the end of it, let's see the end of it, as far as Job is concerned. Because even though he was a mature believer, he wasn't one of these Christians with all kinds of sin in their life that they're not honest about or they're not dealing with. He was the opposite. He was as, as godly a man as you're ever going to meet. And yet let's just read chapter 42 and verses 1 to 6. Because if there was one thing that did come across in a lot of what Job said to his friends, is that clearly, although he was a very, very godly man, he, he did still have a sense of his own self-righteousness. <laughs> and I think that probably what it was is that he, he was mistaking the godliness of his life for something that he had at least helped God do. <laughs> and I've got to tell you that when it comes to sanctification, just like justification, it's something we receive as a gift. It's not something we do. We have to cooperate in the same way that when we were initially convicted of sin, we repented and believed in Jesus. But it was only the activeness of receiving a free gift and then acting on it. You know, like say someone says, Beresford, I've just deposited by electronic transfer a million dollars into your account. I would immediately say, right, then I will start spending it. You, <laughs> yeah. you, 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 you naturally act on something when you've received a gift. Well, sanctification is the same, but probably Job was thinking that, <clears throat> he was doing quite well, and that was a kind of a self-righteous thing. So in chapter 42, and this was when God has spoken, he's told his friends that they were wrong and that Job was right, and, 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 and he's raised a load of questions to Job. You know, little things like, well, where were you when I created? Oh, am, am I saying too much here, Lord? <laughs> yes, you've said too much. And listen to this. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. <laughs> things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Oh, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, <coughs> I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And <coughs> the reason for this test was to prove to Satan that a believer could suffer and through that suffering prove that he loved God for himself alone. But the secondary effect, and this works in our life as well, the secondary effect 
In everything, God works together for good to them that love him and accord according to his purposes. Whenever we go through times of weakness, suffering or whatever, okay, what we realise is a greater experience of just how sinful we actually mm. are. Now, remember, Job went through this not because he was a carnal believer, but because he was a godly believer. And he came out of it even more aware of his sinfulness than when he went in. And he went into it as a godly man, well aware of his sinfulness. Do you see what I mean? And so part of the result of this is that Job came out of it far closer to the Lord with a far greater revelation of the Lord and therefore of his own sinfulness than he went into it with. It wasn't the sole purpose. The main purpose was demonstrating something to Satan. But the secondary effect is that he grew even more as a believer and was sanctified even more. And so it is with us too. Now... <laughs> Are we doing bug watch over there? There's only one explanation for that. That was a bug. <laughs> and my family has dealt with it. Good, 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 good. A bit like Satan. Right? Under, that bug is under Blinder's feet. It's a wasp. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> one of the things that we need to understand, and now we're back a little bit to just behind that cosmic curtain. If God so desired... He could throw Satan and all the demons into the lake of fire now. Have done with him. But instead, go to Ephesians. Go to Ephesians. One of the things the Lord knows what, what, what to do is when to use his power and when to use his brains. Can, can you appreciate the difference, what I'm saying there? There's a time, I mean, you know, if you want to if you want to lay blocks when you're building your home, you need power. But if you want to do a crossword puzzle, you need brain power. Can you, can you see what I mean? And the Lord knows how to meet each circumstance as it needs meeting with. There is going to come a day when he will throw Satan and the evil spirits in the lake of fire, as he will every unbeliever throughout history. But that day hasn't come yet. He could do that. He could just squidge Satan, just like Belinda just did with that wasp over there. But he doesn't. And he doesn't because he's doing something that is actually far more important in the meantime. And Ephesians chapter 3, listen to this. Paul says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages was kept hidden in God. So with the new covenant, with the New Testament, comes revelation that had never been given out before. And as revelation progressively unfolds, Obviously, it ended once the New Testament was complete. But Paul's bringing revelation, truth, doctrine that had never been known before, only then being revealed because of what Jesus was doing. And he, he says, his intent, i.e. God, his intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God 
should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, i.e. Satan and the demons. Now, can you see what it's saying there? God could bring judgment on Satan right now by just throwing him to the lake of fire. And then he wouldn't be a problem for the human race anymore. But that is not the nature of God's judgment on Satan at the moment. God's judgment, the punishment, always fits the crime. It must. It's part of God's justice. It's part of his holiness. Now think, how was it that Satan became the God of this world in the first place? He used his cunning, he used his mind, not his physical power, Satan has physical power, but he used his cleverness to outwit Adam and Eve. That was how Satan became the God of this world. And God's judgment is on Satan for doing that. So therefore, how does God judge Satan in this life? He does it by constantly outwitting <laughs> Satan through the very people that Satan originally outwitted and caused to fall into sin. He outwits Satan through the church, through redeemed sinners. So that everything that was lost in the Garden of Eden, because Satan outwitted them, is regained in the church as God outwits Satan through the very people that Satan had been God of before they got saved. You see the point? It's poetic justice. <laughs> the punishment always fits the crime. And so therefore, in our lives, it's a bit like, you know, so much of what we go through. Um, you know the Tom and Jerry cartoons? I think they're a great picture of spiritual warfare and how God works through the church. Because what you've got is you've got Tom, the cat, all right, and you've got Jerry, the mouse. So, so, so you've always got Tom, and Tom's the devil here, right? And Jerry's the mouse, okay? And so, what you've got, sorry, Tom, Tom the devil, and Jerry is the church, a believer, okay? And Tom is all the time trying to eat Jerry. So Jerry's all the way running, you know, all the time running away from from the cat. But then enter Butch the dog. Now, what happens is one of the tactics that Jerry uses. Is, is he sets Tom, the cat, up to be chasing him. So the chase ends, and just round the corner there's Butch. So what happens is Jerry is chasing the mouse. The mouse goes straight to the dog, and then the dog gets Jerry. Now, part of what God is doing, he spiritually, he uses us as the mouse trap, all right, to catch the devil. Because he uses us almost as bait. And so therefore, Satan, because he can only think in terms of absolute ungodly thinking, Satan cannot help but act according to his own, you know, purpose and motive. But what happens is everything he does in order to try and, try and thwart us being obedient to God, at the last minute, God turns it on its head and it always ends up working against Satan. Now, think of the classic example, and I was asked to, you know, sort of, you know, if possible, just chuck in, I'll do it in now. The thing about the persecuted church. 
And yeah, I cannot conceive what those men and women are going through. I can only pray if it was us, we would have God's grace too. But you, you can't project ahead and say, what would I do if I was them? What would I do if an ISIS militia man said, renounce Jesus or I'm going to chop your head off? I mean, how can you? All I can say is I pray that God would give me the grace and that I could have my head chopped off. But left to me, I'd run a mile. I'd say, what would you like to become? You know, Quran, Buddhist, you know, you name it, I'll become it. We can only trust that God would give us the grace to suffer in that way. But when you look at persecution, what is it? It is Satan manipulating unrepentant men using their sin and their hatred to attack godly men and women who are following the law. Okay. So therefore, Satan's first approach has always been to physically destroy Christians. Now, why is that his first approach? Because he's a murderer. He's violent. So when you get violent men, they punch first and think about it afterwards. It's Satan's nature. So how does God use this to further his own purposes through the church? Well, because what Satan does in persecuting people is so horrible for those people, immediately they're put in a position of utter, utter desperation. And God knows, even though we're his people, we still naturally depend on ourselves before we <laughs> depend on him. But when Christians are put in a position where they're utterly and totally helpless, there's no point in them trying to depend on themselves. There's nothing they can do. So therefore they depend on God and they reveal God's power and nature even more than they would have done That's if they right. weren't being persecuted. So the point is that when Satan persecutes the church physically, what happens? You get more godliness, more power, the gospel spreads, and the more Satan tries to destroy the church physically, the more and more and more people get converted, and hence the church actually grows. And again, that's a picture of the spiritual warfare. Satan's purpose is to destroy the church. And he's using his hatred and violence. But every time it works against him. And whatever Satan does to try and thwart us, if we stick close to the Lord, that will actually be the means of God judging Satan and destroying what he's doing whereas Satan thinks it's him destroying what we are doing. Mm. And so when you've got in everything God works together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purposes, the whole point about the in everything, I mean, obviously, yeah, in what we will call great blessings, God works for good. But that's not the purpose of that verse. It's the horrible things. It's the terrible things. It's when it looks like there is not a loving God in the universe. That's what it looks like. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even that will work together for our own good. And like Job, what it all boils down to is this. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. It cannot ever be that God is wrong. And if you've got someone who is convinced enough about that to stake their life on it, you've got someone that Satan can do nothing about except tremble before them. And, you know, as most of you know here, last year I had my fight with cancer. And it was a truly terrible time. Obviously, having it was not nice. 
they got it out and that looked good and then it tons and tons six months of chemotherapy which was horrific in a way i can't begin to describe thank the lord all done clear now but in in going through that um however horrific it was and it was i i can certainly say that I experienced being closer to the Lord than I'd ever been before, precisely because when you're in a, a situation of desperation, you just hang on to the Lord more than you would normally. And I really did find what Christian was saying, perfect love casts out fear. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, I, you know, sort of like you can be frightened of what they've got to do to your body to fight this. But that dark, horrible, ominous fear never came, never came. It, it was all, it always stayed a bit light and airy and I could laugh and joke my way through it. And, and, you know, and the light of the Lord was in it. No, no question. But from a practical point of view, obviously, I mean, well, it, really it was 15 months. It's only now that I'm getting back to, you know, sort of back to normal. For 15 months, I was pretty useless. All right. So there are a lot of people who think that even when I'm normal, I'm pretty useless and that what I do is of no avail. But the point is, I leave that to others to decide. But the point is, last year, of whatever use I normally am, whether any at all, I definitely wasn't last year. So from that point of view alone, it was unproductive in every which way regarding what God has called me to do by way of serving him. And yet... Because I'm aware of the book of Job and that insight it gives us behind the cosmic curtain, and because, by God's grace, I was able throughout to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, I've come out of it with a kind of, um, I, I can't be dead sure about this, but I think it's absolutely biblically reasonable for me to conclude that I think last year... God used me, through me, he did more damage to Satan's kingdom than I think possibly throughout the rest of my life prior to that. Because although visually I was just kind of there, suffering, a bit like Job, not as bad as him, but suffering, okay. I mean, so humanly, well, okay, the guy's sick, he's got to have a year off work, boom, boom, boom. But behind that cosmic curtain, I think bombs were going off. I really do. And that's exactly, can you imagine the effect Job had on Satan because of the way he came through this? And again, though he slain me, yet will I trust him. And it's why it's so important in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in to be content. And I face the challenge of being content as one a cancer sufferer but then a recovering cancer sufferer trying to survive chemotherapy <laughs> mm. and that was a challenge but by god's grace it can be done and if god can do that in me then i've got no doubt he can do that in absolutely anybody so yeah there you are suffering there's far more to it than meets the eye but it is never ever the lord's fault